looking at the second half of the book of Ezekiel. Two very uneven halves, of course, in terms of the number of chapters. But we're in a section of the book dealing with visions and promises for the future. Israel at this point is in disarray. The city of Jerusalem has fallen. Their hope has gone. But into that situation, God sends Ezekiel with a message of hope. He paints a bright picture of what's ahead for God's people. And this morning, we come to Ezekiel chapter 37. It's probably the most well-known passage in the whole book due to a certain song, which I'm not going to sing, but Trevor was threatening to play before the service. It's the most well-known passage, but maybe not the most well-understood passage. If you're using a church Bible, you'll find chapter 37 on page 868. In this chapter, God does wonders with sticks and bones. And I'm going to read the whole of chapter 37. The hand of the Lord was upon me. And he brought me out by the Spirit of the Lord and set me in the middle of a valley. It was full of bones. He led me to and fro among them. And I saw a great many bones on the floor of the valley, bones that were very dry. He asked me, Son of man, can these bones live? I said, O sovereign Lord, you alone know. Then he said to me, prophesy to these bones and say to them, dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. This is what the sovereign Lord says to these bones. I will make breath enter you and you will come to life. I will attach tendons to you and make flesh come upon you and cover you with skin. I will put breath in you and you will come to life. Then you will know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded, and as I was prophesying, there was a noise, a rattling sound, and the bones came together, bone to bone. I looked, and tendons and flesh appeared on them, and skin covered them, but there was no breath in them. Then he said to me, prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to it, this is what the sovereign Lord says, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe into these slain that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and breath entered them. They came to life and stood up on their feet, a vast army. Then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. They say, our bones are dried up and our hope is gone. We are cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says. O my people, I am going to open your graves and bring you up from them. I will bring you back to the land of Israel. Then you, my people, will know that I am the Lord. When I open your graves and bring you up from them, I will put my spirit in you and you will live. And I will settle you in your own land. Then you will know that I, the Lord, have spoken and I have done it, declares the Lord. The word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, take a stick of wood and write on it, belonging to Judah and the Israelites associated with him. 
Then take another stick of wood and write on it, Ephraim's stick belonging to Joseph and all the house of Israel associated with him. Join them together into one stick so that they will become one in your hand. When your countrymen ask you, won't you tell us what you mean by this? Say to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says. I am going to take the stick of Joseph, which is in Ephraim's hand, and of the Israelite tribes associated with him, and join it to Judah's stick, making them a single stick of wood, and they will become one in my hand. Hold before their eyes the sticks you have written on, and say to them, This is what the Sovereign Lord says. I will take the Israelites out of the nations where they have gone. I will gather them from all around, and bring them back into their own land. I will make them one nation in the land, on the mountains of Israel. There will be one king over all of them, and they will never again be two nations or be divided into two kingdoms. They will no longer defile themselves with their idols and vile images or with any of their offenses. For I will save them from all their sinful backsliding, and I will cleanse them. They will be my people, and I will be their God. My servant David will be king over them, and they will all have one shepherd. They will follow my laws and be careful to keep my decrees. They will live in the land I gave to my servant Jacob, the land where your fathers lived. They and their children and their children's children will live there forever. And David, my servant, will be their prince forever. I will make a covenant of peace with them. It will be an everlasting covenant. I will establish them and increase their numbers. And I will put my sanctuary among them forever. My dwelling place will be with them. I will be their God, and they will be my people. Then the nations will know that I, the Lord, make Israel holy when my sanctuary is among them forever. This is God's word. We'll look at this, and we'll also see how the promises of this chapter are developed and fulfilled in the New Testament. The first thing to say is that it would be hard to find a bigger contrast between the end of chapter 36 and the beginning of chapter 37. Chapter 36 ended with God promising a flourishing land, a land like Eden, a land filled with living, thriving people. Chapter 37 opens with a very different picture. The valley of death. Nothing's alive here. It's silent. And all you can see for miles are dry, white bones. It's a vision, of course. It's not an actual place. But it's a very vivid vision. In verse 2, Ezekiel says, The Spirit of the Lord led me to and fro among them, and I saw a great many bones on the floor of the valley, bones that were very dry. Ezekiel is being shown that there really is no life at all here. He can look all he wants. He can turn over as many piles of bones as he wants. He won't find even a flicker of life here. 
Ezekiel goes to and fro, and he confirms for us that these bones are very dry. Not only is everything thoroughly dead here, it's been thoroughly dead for a long time. Now that Ezekiel is sure there isn't an ounce of life here, God says in verse 3, Son of man, can these bones live? Now, on a human level, it's a ridiculous question. The answer is no. However, it's God who's asking the question. And considering that, Ezekiel hedges his bets. O sovereign Lord, you alone know. In other words, humanly speaking, no. But with you, I can't rule it out, Ezekiel says. Look again at verse 4. Then he said to me, prophesy to these bones and say to them, dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. This is what the sovereign Lord says to these bones. I will make breath enter you and you will come to life. I will attach tendons to you and make flesh come upon you and cover you with skin. I will put breath in you and you will come to life. Then you will know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded. And as I was prophesying, there was a noise, a rattling sound, and the bones came together, bone to bone. I looked, and tendons and flesh appeared on them, and skin covered them, but there was no breath in them. Then he said to me, prophesy to the breath. Prophesy, son of man, and say to it, this is what the sovereign Lord says. Come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe into these slain, that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and breath entered them. They came to life and stood up on their feet, a vast army. Then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. They say our bones are dried up and our hope is gone. We are cut off. God raises an army from the valley of death. If we're going to understand this vision, there are four things we need to notice here. The first thing is in verse 11. The dry bones in the vision represent people who are physically alive. The Israelites are describing themselves as dry bones. And what they mean is, our hope is gone. We are cut off. They're cut off from their homeland They're scattered around in exile. And ultimately, they are cut off from God. Their hope is gone. So they're physically alive, but from another perspective, they are thoroughly dead. One writer says, They knew themselves to be dead while they lived, for they were cut off from the life-giving presence of the living God. That was Israel's assessment of themselves. And by showing Ezekiel this vision of dry bones, God is agreeing with Israel's assessment of themselves. Spiritually speaking, they are thoroughly dead and dry and without hope. The second thing to notice is that all the way through this, there's a word play going on. It's a word play between the words breath spirit, and wind. Those three English words are translating the same Hebrew word. 
That one Hebrew word can mean breath or spirit or wind. So, for example, when God says, I will put breath in you, it could also be translated, I will put spirit in you. Why is that worth noticing? It's worth noticing because of chapter 36. Turn back a page or so to chapter 36, verse 26. God says, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit in you. This vision in chapter 37 is talking about the fulfillment of God's promise in chapter 36. This vision of God giving breath to lifeless bodies is a promise that God will give spiritual life to people who are spiritually dead. The third thing to notice is that this coming to life is described as a two-stage process. Verse 7 describes the bones coming together and being covered in tendons, flesh, and skin. But they're not yet alive. In verse 8, Ezekiel says, He looked at these fully formed bodies, but there was no breath in them. Then in verse 10, breath or spirit entered them, they came to life and stood up on their feet. So this is a two-stage process. We might say, well, so what? Why is that worth noticing? Well, think for a moment. Does that remind you of anything else in the Bible? Maybe it reminds you of Genesis chapter 2. Because we're told there that's exactly how the very first man was created. The Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath or spirit of life. And the man became a living being. That was a two-stage process. God formed the man, then breathed life into him. And I don't think the connection between Genesis 2 and Ezekiel 37 is accidental. We're supposed to understand that here in Ezekiel 37, we are being shown a second act of creation. And it's just as marvelous as that first act back in Genesis 2. In Genesis 2, God created physical life in the first man. Here in our passage, God promises to create spiritual life in this vast army. This is going to be a new thing, just as the creation of the first man was a new thing. And the final thing to notice here is the way Ezekiel describes these bodies filled with breath or spirit. In verse 10, he calls them a vast army. One writer says, When the resuscitated bones come together, they become an army, not a debating club or a beach party. They were raised for a purpose. When God brings about this new creation... It will be an army called to serve him. So the vision ends with the valley of death now filled with a vast living army. 
And in verses 12 to 14, God makes it clear that this vision is a promise. God has shown a picture of what he is going to do. Now, when we read a promise in the Old Testament, it's always worth asking, does the New Testament pick up and develop this promise? And in this case, there is one passage in particular that shows us how God fulfills this promise. Earlier, Alan read Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians was written to the early church, the church that was made up of both Jews and Gentiles. And in chapter 2, verse 1, Paul reminds them of their past. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. They were physically alive, but they were spiritually dead. Then in verse 4, Paul goes on to say, But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. They have been raised from death by God's power. Then in verse 10, We are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. God created his church for a purpose, to do good works. And you'll notice too, this new creation happens in Christ. Christ is the one who brings it about. It happens when we are united with Christ. So God's promise of new life is fulfilled through the work of Jesus Christ. And the vast army turns out to be not squadrons of chariots or tanks. No, it turns out to be the church that belongs to Jesus Christ. And biblically, this is how we are to think of ourselves. The church of Jesus Christ is not a debating club or a beach party. You and I are part of a vast army. We are raised from death to life by God's power. And we've been raised with a purpose to serve God. And unlike many armies over the years, we don't suffer from a lack of supplies. We've been given the gifts of the Spirit and the armor of God. We're not only created for every good work, we've also been equipped for those good works. Not every individual Christian has every gift, but then neither does any individual soldier. An army is a unit. It's made up of individuals and smaller groups who are working together. Each of them have different roles to play. That's the positive side of the application here. But if you're not a Christian, then the Bible challenges you to see yourself as you really are. You're like those dry bones lying in the valley of death. You're dead in your transgressions and sins. You are without hope, cut off from God. You can't raise yourself to spiritual life any more than those bones in the valley could raise themselves to life. You need God to do his new creating work in you, to come and breathe life into you. 
And that happens when you trust in Jesus as your only source of new life. A moment ago I said that an army is one unit. And in that sense, the vision we've just seen raised a major question for Ezekiel's audience. Yes, God has promised to bring life out of death. But if his vast army is going to be any use, he also needs to bring unity out of disunity. Think about Israel's history. The first three kings of Israel ruled over one united kingdom, Saul, then David, then Solomon. But after Solomon, the nation broke in two. The southern territory of Israel was divided between two of the twelve tribes of Israel. One of those was Judah. And the southern kingdom came to be called Judah. That's where Ezekiel is from. The northern territory was divided between seven and a half tribes. One of those was Ephraim. Ephraim had been one of the sons of Joseph. And the northern kingdom was usually known as Ephraim. If you're wondering about the other two and a half tribes, they were actually given land to the east of Israel. In any case, the point I'm trying to make is that after Solomon, Israel was no longer united. It effectively became two nations, and it was ruled by two different lines of kings. After Solomon came 400 years of divided history for Israel. And in addition, Ephraim, the northern kingdom, had been taken into exile a hundred years before the southern kingdom had. And they'd both gone to different places. So not only were the north and south enemies of each other, they were scattered far away from each other. And yet in verse 11, God says that the bones in the valley represent the whole house of Israel. The vast army is made up of the southerners and the northerners. God has explained how he's going to bring his army to life. Now the obvious question is, how is he going to bring unity? Not only how is he going to bring them together, but how is he going to stop them tearing each other to pieces? In verses 15 to 22, God turns to that question. The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, take a stick of wood and write on it, belonging to Judah and the Israelites associated with him. Then take another stick of wood and write on it, Ephraim's stick, belonging to Joseph and all the house of Israel associated with him. Join them together into one stick so that they will become one in your hand. When your countrymen ask you, won't you tell us what you mean by this? Say to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says. I'm going to take the stick of Joseph, which is in Ephraim's hand, and of the Israelite tribes associated with him, and join it to Judah's stick, making them a single stick of wood, and they will become one in my hand. Hold before their eyes the sticks you have written on, and say to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says. I will take the Israelites out of the nations where they have gone. I will gather them from all around and bring them back into their own land. I will make them one nation in the land, on the mountains of Israel. 
There will be one king over all of them. And they will never again be two nations or be divided into two kingdoms. The answer to the question of unity is that God unites his people through his one king. Several times already in this book, Ezekiel has been given some street theater to perform. And here God sends him out with another act to perform in public. So Ezekiel leaves his house. He sets down his bag at a prominent place in the settlement, a place where all the crowds tended to converge. He takes a stick out of his bag, probably a fairly flat piece of wood, more like a short plank. He bends down and he writes on it, and then he holds it up for everyone to see. Now the people are jostling around. They're trying to get a clear view. Someone reads it out loud. Belonging to Judah and the Israelites associated with him. Well, that's us. That's the southerners. Now what's Ezekiel doing? He produces another short plank, writes on it, and he holds it up to the crowd. Ephraim's stick, belonging to Joseph and all the house of Israel associated with him. That's the northerners. Then as the crowd watches, Ezekiel joins the planks together. Maybe he had cut grooves in the end. Maybe he set them back to back. Maybe he tied them together with a leather piece of cord. In any case, he joins them. And then he explains in verse 19, this is what the sovereign Lord says. I'm going to take the stick of Joseph, which is in Ephraim's hand, and if the Israelite tribes associated with him and join it to Judah's stick, making them a single stick of wood, and they will become one in my hand. Notice what God says, I will join them. They will become one in my hand. Israel is no more capable of uniting itself than it is of cleansing itself from sin or giving itself a new heart or breathing new life into itself. Unity will not come through bilateral talks between the north and south. It won't come by appointing a committee or setting up a peace and reconciliation commission. If unity is going to happen, only God can bring it about. And he promises that he will. How? How will he do it? He gives the answer in verse 22. One king over all of them. God will provide a king capable of gathering the people from all the places where they've been scattered. A king capable of overcoming 400 years of division. A king capable of holding that vast army together. Once God's one king comes to his position, there will never again be two nations. They will never again be divided into two kingdoms. God promises not only to give life to his people, he also promises to unite his people through his one king. And again, Ephesians chapter 2 helps us see how God fulfills his promise. Ephesians 2 widens things out, even beyond the lack of unity in Israel. 
Paul addresses the deep division between Jew and Gentile. If the Judean exiles in the Old Testament thought the Ephraimites were far away, that was even more so for the non-Israelites. But that's who Paul speaks to in Ephesians 2. He says that at one time the Gentiles were excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near through the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by abolishing in his flesh the law with its commandments and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new man out of the two, thus making peace, and in this one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access to the Father by one Spirit. According to the New Testament, Jesus Christ is the one King who unites God's people. Among God's people, no one can claim to be better than anyone else. We all come to God the same way, through faith in Jesus' blood, poured out for our forgiveness. And when we come to God through Jesus, we find that not only do we have peace with God, we also have peace with one another. We have been united into one body of people. Now that doesn't mean unity in practice comes easily to us. The same Paul who wrote to the Ephesians also wrote this to the Corinthians. I appeal to you, brothers, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another so that there may be no divisions among you. He could also write to the Philippians, I plead with Euodia and I plead with Syntyche to agree with each other in the Lord. Unity in practice is hard work. But what God promised in Ezekiel 37 and what Paul explained in Ephesians 2 is that God's people are truly united under God's King. Now sometimes in our sinfulness, we may live in a practical denial of that. But that doesn't change the fact that we are united. And it also means the only way to pursue practical unity is through a greater focus on Christ and his work. Individual believers aren't going to overcome their differences just by shaking hands. They will overcome their differences by remembering that both of them are guilty sinners. Both of them are saved the same way through the mercy of God provided by Jesus' death in their place. And different church bodies don't overcome their differences by trying to ignore doctrine. They overcome their differences by making the focus of their doctrine the person and work and reign of Jesus the King. 
God unites his people through his one king. There's no other way to true unity. Christians speak different languages. We have different backgrounds and personalities. We have different preferences for music and styles of worship. Our unity comes from the fact that we all owe our spiritual life to Jesus' work. And we all serve the same king, Jesus. And finally, in this chapter of promises, God lives with his people forever. Now, these verses mention again a lot of the things that we've already seen in recent weeks. God promises to cleanse his people. He promises they will have hearts that love to obey him. He promises they will return to their land. A descendant of David will rule them. And God himself will again live with them. Those are promises we've already seen in chapters 34 and 36. So what's new here? The new element is permanence. We find the word forever four times in this little section. We also find the word everlasting. They're all translating the same Hebrew word. The message here is that the future God has been promising is not something that's going to come for a while and then go again. It's not just going to be a brief, bright moment in human history. God is making promises here about permanent realities. Verse 25 says, God's people will live in the land forever. David will be their prince forever. Verse 26, God will make a new covenant with his people, and it will be an everlasting covenant. God will live among his people forever. And again in verse 28, God's sanctuary will be among his people forever. God's people had lived in his promised land before. God had lived among his people before. They'd had some good kings before. But this time, it will be forever. There will not be many future kings. There will only be one, Jesus Christ. There will not be many future covenants. There will only be one, the new covenant in Christ's blood. And there will not be many sanctuaries or temples for God. There will only be one. God's dwelling place will be his church. The church made up of all those saved by Christ's blood and filled with Christ's Holy Spirit. And in Ephesians 2, Paul tells us that sanctuary is already being built. He says that in Christ, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his Spirit. Since Christ came, God has been raising an army from the valley of death. He makes us alive through Christ. 
And as that army serves him, it is united by Christ. And we have God's promise that he will be with us forever. Our passage began with a vision of death and decay. It's a description of the world we live in and the people who live in it. T.S. Eliot was writing about the spiritual state of this world when he said, we are the hollow men. This is the dead land. Spiritually speaking, you and I live in the dead land. But we serve the God who can bring life out of death. He can breathe life into spiritually dead men and women. We live in a land where Christ's church seems weak and divided. But God can bring unity to his church. He can turn his church back to Jesus, their king. In Ezekiel 37, God did wonders with sticks and bones. He has done wonders in our lives. He has made us alive. Let's ask him to do wonders in the lives of our families and in our nation. Let's remember that we are an army united in Christ. Let's recommit ourselves to serve God faithfully. And let's ask God to breathe fresh life into us. We're going to do that as we stand together and sing, O breath of life, come sweeping through us.